Professor Justin Cami is a literary and cultural historian with research and teaching interest in Yiddish literature, Eastern European Jewish history, and Zionism and contemporary Israel. He holds a doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from Harvard University and a bachelor's in Middle Eastern Studies from McGill University. In addition to appointments in Jewish studies and comparative literature, he also is a member of, of the programs in Middle Eastern Studies and Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. His publications range from essays on canonical Yiddish writers to scholarly translations of Yiddish literature to critical introductions to new editions of works by Yiddish writers and, and memoirs. His book on Young Vilna, the last Yiddish literary group in interwar Poland, is forthcoming. Has it forthcoming arrived? No. Okay. When will it arrive? I don't know. A year and a half. These things take forever. Okay. Okay. Who's publishing it? Indiana. Okay. That's a good press, right? Indiana. He's currently working on an English edition of Abraham Suskever's Vilna Ghetto, one of the earliest Yiddish Holocaust memoirs to describe the destruction of a Jewish city. And is, when's that one coming up? That one I'm submitting in July. Okay. Awesome. In addition to his courses on Jewish literature, history, and politics, Professor Kami has guided Smith students. Anybody Smith or Smith? Kids Smith, grandkids of Smith? You know, okay. It's a good school. You can get anybody in, right? Who's here today? Any grandkids? Okay. I know the actions. There you go. Professor Kami has guided Smith students and alumni abroad to study the religious and political history of Jerusalem, environmental challenges in Israel, the history and memory of Yiddish land, and Prague through the ages. In recent years, Professor Kami has served as a research fellow at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. The web he's been a Webb Family Visiting Scholar at the Goldreich Institute for Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture at Tel Aviv University, and Mellon Senior Scholar on Holocaust and Visiting Professor of English at UCLA, he, right up the street. He is a regular guest faculty member at Yiddish summer programs at Tel Aviv University and the Yiddish Book Center. In 2006, he was awarded Smith's College Sherrod Sher Sher Prize for Distinguished Teaching. I want to thank Jake Jacobs. Where's Jake? For recommending our speaker today. No pressure on you, but he better be good. Just, <laughs> just saying. If you have any issues about the program today, you may find Jake in the parking lot after the program. Um, and uh, no, thank you very much. We'd like to have good recommendations. Please join me in welcoming <laughs> Professor Justin Cammy all the way from Smith College in Massachusetts. That's right. And I assume you're a Red Sox fan. Uh, Am I wearing my Red Sox hat? No. You're wearing your CSP hat. Oh, no, well, yeah, I'm a Red Sox fan. Okay, good. Although, I, I'm all, like, like you, I may want to go home later and watch uh, the Green Bay and the Patriots game. Can you all hear me? Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here and a pleasure to talk uh, a little bit about Yiddish. I'm here for two days, and tomorrow I'm going to really be focusing on Yiddish in the contemporary period. Today is a little bit more, today's a little bit more historical, and, uh, but I'm happy, if you're not going to be coming tomorrow, to answer any questions you may have about Yiddish more broadly uh, once I conclude my remarks. So I'm sticking around as long as you need me, and I think that I was told to speak for about 45, 50 minutes, and then uh, we'll move to questions. Does that sound like a good... Good frame. Okay, perfect. So, um, a little bit about the title, When Yiddish Was Young. Uh, there's a clear paradox in the field that I uh, deal with. Namely, that most students, I would say most people in the world nowadays, tend to think of Yiddish as old, as grandparenty, as something from the past, as something that was victimized, sidelined, diasporic, murdered, shunned. You could use any one of those uh, uh, ways of describing it. 
But of course, we know that up until the most recent period, uh, Yiddish speakers themselves never thought of Yiddish as somehow old or past its time. Yiddish uh, held within it the language of contemporaneity and of the future. And in a way, we can see how the 20th century really changed the nature not only of Jewish culture, but the relationship between Jews and their languages by remembering that at the beginning of the 20th century, which really in the long arc of Jewish history is not that long ago, uh, Yiddish was the language that seemed to be the language of the street, the language of radicalism, the language of Jewish politics. Uh, Yiddish was the language that was the Jewish language spoken by more Jews at any other point in Jewish history. So let's think about that just for a second. More Jews spoke Yiddish on the eve of World War II than Jews had ever spoken any other Jewish language at any other point in Jewish history, including whatever languages they spoke during the ancient period when the Jews had last had their independence. So we're talking not just about something that's a passing phase, not something that sort of is relegated to the Eastern European Jewish experience. We're talking about a language that is almost a thousand years old and that possesses the same type of classical heft in terms of its relationship with Jewish ideas and Jewish texts and Jewish culture and politics and the family and domesticity as perhaps other languages. And at the dawn of the 20th century, if you had asked someone about the future of Jewish languages and especially the language politics that were part of Yiddish and Hebrew or assimilation into Russian or into German, people would have said, well, Hebrew is the language of the past. Hebrew is the language of old age. Hebrew is the language of classical history. Hebrew is the language of thought. Yiddish is the language of the future. So it goes to show you how very quickly uh, Jewish history and Jewish tongues can change based on the circumstances in which Jews find themselves and in which Jews follow certain migration uh, patterns. So when I talk about when Yiddish was young, I'm really trying to paint a picture today, a very narrow picture, not a broad picture of what is Yiddish or why Yiddish matters. Tomorrow we'll talk a little bit about why Yiddish matters and different landscapes of Yiddish, both in high culture uh, and in popular culture and in literary culture and also just in general vernacular culture. But today I want to point out or maybe draw a picture of ourselves of the 1930s sort of Yiddish in this moment where nowadays when we backshadow and know what happened afterwards, we can talk about Yiddish on the precipice, right? Yiddish during the 1930s when it finds itself in Eastern Europe, somehow caught between threats from Nazi Germany to the West, uh, attractions of Soviet culture and internationalism and the promise of perhaps liberation of the Jews as workers coming from the East, rising xenophobia within Poland itself, and what decisions would have been made by young Jews being born at that time. What I'm really interested in is focusing on people who are in their 20s, sort of young people coming out, the whole, they have their whole lives before them. What languages are they going to choose? And also, if they choose Yiddish, what does that offer them in terms of different possibilities? And I do this uh, also with my students because I think it's important to remind them that there was a time and place not so long ago where one could be born in Yiddish, nursed in Yiddish, go to a kindergarten in Yiddish, go to a school and a high school or a technical school or a teacher's seminary, that is live one's entire life totally in Yiddish. Uh, and that's something that perhaps we forget when we think about Yiddish nowadays as sort of a language that belongs to grandparents, a language that people switched into when they didn't want us to understand certain things. It also reveals um, 
certain painful aspects of uh, Jews and their relationship to, to languages, uh, namely that two points I'll make in this regard. One, um, the freer the country, the less culturally literate the Jew. This is normally how things work. That is, the more Jews feel part of a country and feel assimilated into it, the less they need their languages, I mean Jewish languages, and the less they need to have some type of mastery over whatever texts seem to have meaning for that community. And the alternative is also true. The more that Jews feel threatened, or the more that Jews are told that they don't belong, the more they turn to Jewish languages and to Jewish culture, including to Jewish texts, as a way in some way to find their own language and vocabulary and grammar for navigating some of those challenges. So that's one point to make. Uh, the other point uh, that I wanted to make about when Yiddish was young has to do with the fact that uh, we don't tend to think about the degree of responsibility that our own communities have towards the disappearance of Yiddish. That is, it's become very easy nowadays to talk about this language being the most spoken language in Jewish history in 1939, and somehow because it's not spoken as much anymore, that somehow that is the fault of Hitlerism and of Nazism. And of course, when you wipe out major Jewish centers, including their entire institutional culture, that's going to have a major effect. Uh, and we can blame it to a certain extent on that. We can also blame it, of course, to a certain extent on Stalinism, because Stalin, there were many, many Jews and Yiddish speakers uh, in the Soviet Union at the time who were not necessarily touched by Nazism, but Stalin, after the Holocaust, eradicated uh, most of the intellectuals and the cultural producers who were involved in Yiddish life. So we can, th that, and, and when we think of that, perhaps that's even a greater betrayal, or at least as great a betrayal as the promise that Germany had held out in terms of being a partner or a home for Jews, uh, so too was that betrayal uh, perhaps larger for Jews who were living in the Soviet Union who had tied their future to the communist promise only to see themselves betrayed by that. But even if we think of those two things, Hitler and Stalin, or Nazism and communism, as things that betrayed Yiddish and are responsible for destroying it, that doesn't answer the question that prior to Hitlerism and prior to Stalinism, there were millions of Jews in the United States who came with Yiddish, developed Yiddish schools, raised Yiddish children, and those families and that culture was not destroyed by fascism or another extreme form of violence. That was a, that was a willing disregard, or let's say a willing giving away of a certain inheritance or treasure that is the product, it is both the genius and also the tragedy that we might think of as American Jewish culture. That the more Jews felt comfortable and assimilated into this country, the quicker, usually within a generation, if not two, they moved away from their uh, Yiddish ideas and Yiddish commitments, so that nowadays we, we essentially have a culturally illiterate American Jewish population. It's one of the first major diaspora populations in all of Jewish history in which Jews are not culturally literate in any Jewish language. Forget about Yiddish. Most Jews, they can't. Maybe they can read a Siddur, but if you ask them if they understand what's in a Siddur, or if they can read the Hebrew Bible in the original, or go through a simple piece of text, they can't. So this is really something that I think is the challenge for the next generation. And culture goes through arcs, and pendulums, as we know, swing. 
And one of the things that I think the real challenge of American Jewry is going to be over the coming 20, 30, 40 years in a cultural level is to figure out how to reintegrate either past Jewish languages or vernaculars or to move towards English as one of the latest of many Jewish diasporic languages. So when we think of Yiddish, we can think of Yiddish and Judeo-Arabic and Judeo-Turkish and Ladino, really Judeo-Spanish. And the question is raised, why do we need all of these languages? Why do Jews develop these separate Jewish languages when most of those languages are based on a grammar and a language that already exists? Because if Yiddish is grammatically 70% or so Middle High German, why did Jews at the time need to write, develop a separate language? What is the impulse for that? Why not just speak German? Or why do you need Ladino? Why not just speak Spanish? And if you think about it, some of the questions have to do with the fact that all Jewish languages that are Jewish languages are written in Aleph base, right? So they're written in the Hebrew alphabet. And to a certain extent, they have a very, very large percentage of what we would call Lushen Koidish, Hebrew vocabulary that is particular to Jewish experience, Jewish religious experience, Jewish ritual experience, the Jewish calendar, and those are the things that make those languages different. Whether or not, the author Cynthia Ozick asked this question decades ago, whether or not English will become, whether there'll be a variant of English that becomes, let's say, a new Yiddish, is a really, really fascinating question. And part of it will depend on the culture and the times in which Yiddish finds itself. So I understand that some of you, uh, and certainly the program, are going to Vilna. Vilna doesn't exist anymore as Vilna. Like many other Eastern European centers, uh, its population and its institutions were destroyed in World War II. If you look up Vilna on a map, it doesn't exist because Vilna is the Russian name for this city. It was Russian before it became German, before it became Polish, before it became uh, Soviet before it became Lithuanian, before it became German, before it became Lithuanian uh, and Soviet, and now it's free Lithuanian. So it moved from being Vilna, Yiddish Vilna, Yerushalayim de Lite, the Jerusalem of Lithuania, Vilno in Polish, and now the capital of independent Lithuania, Vilnius. But it's an amazing town, uh, and I just brought my own students both to Vilna and to Warsaw for a seminar on Yiddishlands because... Uh, Jews have a really, really interesting relationship with heritage travel and with their own histories because most of the time when we do tourism, we do tourism to see things, right? We go to Paris to see the Eiffel Tower or we go to Paris to see the Louvre and we take a picture of ourselves in front of it as a type of memory or literally a souvenir to remember that we've been there. Yet Jews, uh, which shows commitment to Jewish history, tend to go to places, whether it be increasing heritage travel to North Africa or to uh, Iberia uh, or now to Eastern Europe, we go to places uh, to see emptiness, to communicate and commiserate with ghosts. It's a very interesting form of tourism. I went to Warsaw. What did you see? Nothing. How was it? Fascinating. So when you think about the psychology what now, and I'm exaggerating. Of course, there are institutions, there are buildings where Jews used to live, where institutions used to be. There are museums. One of the most amazing museums in all of Europe right now is the Pauline Museum in Warsaw. There's museums in Vilna. Of course, there are um, sites of Second World War that are endlessly fascinating. So there are things to see, but what you're seeing there is you're looking for hints of the past, echoes of the voices of what once was. 
On, and today I thought I would simply provide us with just a glimpse, a slice of what Yiddish was like at its moment of greatest possibility, excitement, youth, dynamism, energy, but also fearfulness. So there's three things I'm gonna talk about when I talk about when Yiddish was young. One is the cultural, right? In the absence of religion, that is when you have the decline of rabbinic authority, beginning with the Haskalah, or the Haskola in Yiddish, the Jewish enlightenment. When you start to have the decline of rabbinic authority and the decline of traditional Jewish observance, one of the questions is, if you don't want people to completely assimilate and to be lost to the Jewish community, who is then going to claim the authority for leadership or for direction in that Jewish world? And what both Hebraists and Yiddishists agreed on, even though they disagreed on a lot uh, among one another, was that it was now the role of Jewish culture, Jewish secular culture, what in Yiddish we might call Yiddishkeit. And when we think of what this term Yiddishkeit might mean, Yiddish simply means Jewish. So Yiddishkeit means Jewishness, but it goes deeper than just Jewishness. What is Jewishness? How do you define that? In a way, it's a, a form of secular, modern humanism that's forward-looking, integrative, in conversation with trends that are going on in Europe or in the Americas or in the around the world. It's intellectual, it's presentist and future-looking. And uh, part of that is what I want to talk about today, sort of Yiddish as a cultural humanism. The second thing I want to talk about is generational uh, and talk about the fact that uh, the people I'm going to talk about or present to you today are all uh, youth, late teenagers, early uh, young men and women. And what does that experience of living in Yiddish as a young person actually feel or mean, like, or mean to be for them. And finally, artistic. I think that when we talk about when Yiddish was young, we're also talking about a moment that lasts maybe 50 years that has to do with the rise of um, modernism. Modernism as a literary movement, as an aesthetic movement, as a daring movement, as a way to confront realism. That is a tiredness with the thick European novel of the 19th century that's five or 800 pages where you're reading you know, in great detail about everything and perhaps being a little bit more daring, uh, both with their artistry, but also with what they're willing to challenge in terms of their leadership, their communities, and also standards of art um, itself. So the group I'm talking about today is actually not coincidentally called Young Vilna. Can you, perfect, Young Vilna. That is the young writers, of Vilna. And look at these young faces uh, at the time, mostly men, uh, a couple of women. And I want to paint a picture for you of what young Vilna might have been like in the 1930s. They would always hold young Vilna evenings and invite the community where they would read their poetry or their prose or their political announcements. Most of them were progressive. I guess that we would call that on the left. Um, there weren't many right-wing Yiddish writers uh, at the time who were writing as far as I know, but there were non-partisan Yiddish writers who did not want to associate uh, as, as openly with the left. And when they held these evenings, you could always be sure that something zany would happen. So 1931, a Yiddish writer by the name of Henech Soloveitchik, who spent most of his time working among peasants in the countryside around Vilna, comes back dressed in the clothes of a peasant, not necessarily the clothes of a young Jewish man, carrying a big sack. He drops the sack on the stage and begins to recite his poetry. Uh, and the poem, or the story, is about a, a Polish nobleman and uh, his daughter, 
who falls in love with someone who is not noble and they decide that they're going to kill the father because he doesn't stand for the rights of workers, right? And as he's describing this story, which is a fairly sort of banal story of the 1930s, blood starts to seep out of the sack that he put on the stage and the people in the front rows start to scream, they get up, they run away. And uh, what, what, he hadn't, what he'd forgotten is that he had brought home with him a frozen calf's head from the countryside that he was going to then cook and you know use for the coming week and it started to thaw and blood came to, I mean this is the world that these sort of unthinking youth where every you know poetry and, and literature is everything uh, was all about. Fast forward a couple of years later one of the great parodists of uh, modern Yiddish literature Laser Wolf who takes his name from the emasculated character in the Tevya of Fiddler on the Roof so we know that Laser Wolf there was the butcher who Seidel was supposed to marry, but Seidel wants to marry for love and perhaps for feminine empowerment rather than the butcher who her father sets her up with. So he's really the character who's first publicly emasculated in Yiddish literary history, and Laser Wolf chooses that name. Uh, and he chooses that name because he wants to make the case for not taking oneself too seriously. And he gets up on stage that night, Laser Wolf's the guy right at the end, very serious. Uh, looking guy, and he uh, says, you know, everyone, everyone tells me that to be a poet, you have to be understandable, and that part of the problem with poetry nowadays is that it's so daring and it's so avant-garde that readers and audiences can't possibly understand it, so writers just write for themselves and it has no relevance to the street. So I'm going to do something that you can understand. I'm going to recite a poem that I wrote in 10 languages, none of which I understand. And he just chooses words randomly from 10 dictionaries, writes a poem, sits down, and doesn't say anything. People are looking at him. No one understands what just happened. But this was part of the zaniness of the culture, sort of pushing them beyond, uh, we might say, the ghettoization of their own community. A couple of years later, Chaim Grade. Some of you might know the name of Grade. He's probably the most important Yiddish prose writer after Besheva Singer of the second half of the 20th century. If you're really interested in Litvak culture, Lithuanian culture, Jewish religious culture, he has an amazing two-volume novel called, uh, in, in English it's called The Yeshiva, about the world of the Yeshiva. It's a great, great book. Grade in 1936 gets up after having been a Yeshiva student for his entire life, not knowing anything about world literature, not knowing anything about Yiddish literature, not knowing anything about secular culture. And he's in the most extreme form of religious education. And at a certain point, he decides, I just can't take it anymore. It's not for me. I want to be a poet. Because you imagine how that, went, how that went over with his Rosh Yeshiva and with some of the Litvak rabbis with whom he was studying. And a few years later, he publishes a book called Yo, Yes. It's his first book because his entire childhood had been an education of Name, right, of no, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, don't do this, don't look this way, don't go home for the holidays, don't read these books that aren't uh, kosher for you to be reading. So he, when he comes out as a Yiddish poet, it's all um, in the form of affirmation. Yiddish becomes the language for yay-saying, for embracing the world, for contact with the world. And at that moment in 1936, he has a very apocalyptic poem called Ezekiel, Yechezkel, about the moment in which uh, he writes the following line. Uh, any Yiddish speakers here? It's always good when talking about Yiddish to have a few Yiddish words, right? He writes, Ich will der Novi sein, was ein Kloles werden nicht mekoyen. I want to be the prophet whose curses don't come true. That is, most prophets 
prophesies and, you know, about what is going to happen. He's saying, I want to be the prophet in my writing who's telling you what you shouldn't be doing and who's proven wrong. And this is a way of sort of making the poet become the voice that perhaps in previous generations or years would have been taken by the rabbi or by teachers. And finally, 1942, Vilna is already under occupation, one of the last major European cities to fall under occupation. And in 1942, the young writer of Rom Sutzkever, over here, the greatest poet of the second half of the 20th century in Yiddish, this group has two of the best writers of the second half of the 20th century. One prose, one poet. In the Vilna ghetto, decides that he needs to have a literary group he needs to have poetry readings. He needs to preserve culture because culture is the only antidote to what was going on all around them. The more Jews invest in their culture, the more they would remain who they were, not only as human beings, but also as Jews. And uh, writes a poem uh, which others describe as the first night of true spiritual transcendence in the, in, in the period of the ghetto. So this is the power of Yiddish poetry in that time. So what all of these writers that I've just mentioned have in common is that they were members, slide, of uh, this group called Jung Vilna that lasts, starts in 1929 and goes on until the first days of the Vilna ghetto when some of its members flee east into the Soviet interior. Some of them will eventually be killed in the uh, killing fields of Ponar uh, that I'm assuming your trip will go to. It's sort of a must when one goes to um, Vilna. And some uh, end up spending the war ghetto-wise like Sutskever who ends up uh, leaving uh, in the last days of the ghetto, running to the forest as a partisan, and a plane is then sent to him, sent for him from the Soviet Union to rescue him from the front so that he can come back to Moscow and tell people about the horrors of fascism and testify uh, at the Nuremberg trials. Uh, what's really interesting about this group, uh, what do you notice about this, even if you don't know Yiddish? What do you notice about this visually? This is their official emblem. They had, they had artists and graphic artists as well. What do you see? Okay, so you see uh, small streets. So for those of you who know something about Vilna or who will be going to Vilna, one of the sort of the iconographic aspects of the Vilna-built landscape are these arches that go over very small streets in the area that was the sort of Jewish, the old Jewish quarter. What else do you notice? Right, so you have a tree growing out of the old foundations. So this is really the point that I'm trying to make, that you have this idea that we're not just an avant-garde group, we're not a group of radicals who don't care about our past, who don't care about our history, who don't care about our community. There were many Yiddish groups and, and, and other groups like that who wanted to say, you know, as, as perhaps children nowadays do, that parents don't know anything and no one over 40 knows anything and no one knows anything other than youth. They weren't like that. They had great respect for their community even amid their innovation. So in their image, you see here both the old and the new. And in fact, the new is growing out of the old. It's not separate from the old, it's constitutive, it's part of it. Yeah. Graphically, the letters also go into the picture to lead you up into the period. Excellent, so you have the graphic. Anyone who knows something about graphic writing and poetry and art and imagery of the 19, let's say 10, teens, 20s, 30s, will notice that this is pulling on all types of uh, typography, both of the Eastern sort in the Soviet Union and Italian futurism, sort of very, very present at the moment. They're taking the Jewish alphabet, the recognizable Aleph base, but in a way making it very modern, very contemporary, very bold. 
we'll, we'll skip this one. If we look at the cover of their uh, first issue of their journal, they issued three journals together, we see almost the same thing, right? In a different way. What I've just described, the arc of the old town, the factories, the typography at the top. And let's look at the 1935, Young Vilna Journal number two. This is my favorite one. Uh, because they, what they do is they stylize the arc. Now the arc is not, or the arch is not sort of recognizable as part of the city, but is still uh, there. And uh, I also think that the Lamed is very forward looking. This is very, very Soviet in its influences. Uh, so what we see here is a group that is very much of the moment, very responsive to the needs of the community, very committed to uh, those who nurtured them into being. And I think this is also important. Um, the, the older I get, I, and uh, the more I think of the sort of the, the importance of mentoring, but also the importance of having good teachers. I benefited from good teachers. I probably wouldn't be doing uh, what I was. I certainly wouldn't be doing what I was. What I'm doing now, if I hadn't had great um, teachers, especially at the college level, who were patient and sort of just called on you when you needed, knew, knew what students needed to, to be motivated and energized. And so too did these uh, young writers. I think that that's something that when we think about, amid all the buzzwords in the Jewish community, whether it be continuity or acculturation or assimilation or intermarriage or every, all the other buzzwords that have to do with politics at the present moment and involvement in community or disassociating or young people we hear about Generation X and then the millennials dissatisfaction with federation or dissatisfaction with synagogues or dissatisfaction with any organized Judaism. We hear a pop-up you know, Judaism that are happening in their apartments or in their homes. Um, to me, what's really interesting about this group is the, de the degree to which they respected those who had um, nurtured them. I'll give you three examples. Uh, Vilna had a very, very vibrant Yiddish press, five daily newspapers. It's like amazing, five daily Yiddish newspapers uh, in the early years of the 1930s, and uh, of all political stripes. Okay? And the first, uh, the, the major one, the intellectual one, was a nonpartisan Yiddishist paper. Its editor was Zalman Raisin. And Raisin basically took these kids when they were still in high school or high school aged and said, listen, Vilna will not be Vilna if it doesn't produce Yiddish writers. So you need to get yourselves together. You need to form a group because there are other centers out there. There are Yiddish writers in New York. There's a whole Yiddish world going on in uh, Kiev and in Moscow. Moscow is a massive, uh, Warsaw is a massive Yiddish center. If you want to maintain the reputation of your home community, and Vilna had a reputation as being the Jerusalem of Lithuania because of the presence there of the Vilna Gon back in the 18th century, one of the great Talmudists of his time, and because it had been a major center of the Jewish Enlightenment, because it had been the founding center of Jewish socialism and Bundism, because it was a center of early Hebrew publishing, because it hosted by the 19, late 1920s the world's only proto-Yiddish university, the YIVO Institute, or the Jewish Institute for um, uh, Social Research. So for them, the leaders of the community, it only made sense that the reputation of Vilna depended on its young people. And he was gonna do everything he could in order to promote them. And that's basically a great invitation for a young writer. If you write it, you automatically get published. And that allows people to make mistakes and allows people to come together to start to compete with one another. That's one. 
They were also taught in their secondary school and in the streets of the community by the most important poet of that generation, a Yiddish poet by the name of Moshe Kulbach. And it was Kulbach who in 1927 published a poem called Vilna, which ends with him saying, you know, I am the city, the, the speaker saying, I am the city. Essentially, Kulbach gave all younger writers after him, that is all of his students, permission to read their city as text. That's to recognize that I'm not only living here, sometimes we forget, right? So many of you, I assume, live in the area of Orange County, right? It's where you are, but you probably don't pay a lot of attention other than the fact that the weather is nice and you know where your shopping center is and you have your homes and your community. But how would you, would you if you had to transform Orange County into a subject for literature, how would you find the permission and the interesting aspects of it to make that a text? And Kulbach tells them, you are a song spelled in clay and in iron. He doesn't say you are like a song, but he says you are a song. That is in the same way that Jews in previous generations read the Psalms as a form of praise, you too are a form of praise. The place where you live, make a song of it. It was an incredible invitation to young people. And then the third mentor in all of this was the director, doctor, and professor at this institute that I just mentioned, at the Evo Institute, who would spend his free time not editing his own works, not promoting the interests of this major research institute, but serving as um, a scoutmaster, a Yiddish scoutmaster. He would dress up with his knife, with his compass, with you know, his brown shorts and brown shirts, and take young Yiddish students, as young as eight, marching from Vilna into the countryside into the hills to teach them that Yiddish and Jews had what was called possession of place. In Yiddish, we call this Landkentenish, knowing the landscape. That if Jews really wanted to believe, as they did, that Poland was Yiddishland and their homeland, then they need to lay claim to that, not only psychically, but also in their relationships to it. You need to know the flowers. You need to know the birds, you need to know the seasons, and you need to be able to write about this. So all of these writers, whether they be nonpartisan or very politicized, had this education that allowed them to then grow up as somehow emissaries of their community, emissaries of their community to the world, knowing that what young Yiddish writers wrote in Vilna would already have the cachet of being from Vilna, that is, it already had status by virtue of the status of the community. So maybe a few examples just of some of these writers and what they um, wrote. We'll see who pops up. Here's another example of the Jung Vilna um, journal. One more. Ah. So the group included two prose writers, two or three prose writers, uh, three artists, and uh, most of the group was consisted of poets. What I lo really love uh, showing some of these images by Ben Siamichtum, uh, who uh, was murdered uh, during the war. Uh, he also did the image of the groups and the covers that I showed you a few minutes ago. Uh, ben Siamichtum here shows uh, or answers the question on what is Yiddish art? Not what is Jewish art. Um, male, he's male. Um, because who does he portray here? None other than his teacher, Moshe Kulbach, who I just mentioned a moment ago. And who does he have in the top corner? none other than uh, Job. And who does he have in the bottom corner, with Hebrew letters? Moshiach ben Ephraim, which is 
a famous, not, not only a character from Jewish history, but also uh, a major Yiddish novel of the times. And also you can see a dome that's somewhat uh, Eastern looking, right? Might remind us of Jerusalem. You have a worker with a red flag. That is, he's able in some type of pastiche way to include influences past and present, uh, teachers and guides past and present, and to say that these things matter. Here we have a, another image of his Shimshon. All of these randomly uh, were saved during the war and now belong to the Vilna Gaon Jewish State Museum. Woman and a drunk. Uh, one of the things that uh, Yiddish literature, when we read it, allows us to do is desentimentalize our relationship with Jewish history, which I think is really important. When we read Yiddish literature, we read about the fact that there were Jewish prostitutes. We read about Jewish poverty. We read about uh, different types of politics. We read about the fact that um, one of the dangers of the Jewish world then and perhaps uh, now might be the degree to which Jews violently disagreed with one another. And even though they are a small people, found as many ways to disagree and to balkanize one, one another from, from, from themselves uh, as they did to come together as communities. So here we have Michtom uh, responding to the reality of the Jewish street of the 1930s, namely that it was highly politicized, that there were many underground communists, including uh, in the group. And in fact, the Jung Vilna Journal was confiscated several times by the Polish uh, police uh, and uh, members, certain members of its group uh, arrested. Here we have one of the women uh, artists, Shana Efron, and what we see here, another very working class interest in their imagery. Here we have, um, what do you think this is? What does this look like to you? Shoemaker. Yeah, exactly. Workers lining up for their pay stubs. And next one. Rachel Stutzkover, another not related to the poet that I mentioned earlier. She actually, this is quite amazing. It's not easy to see because there's only a facsimile. But Rachel Stutzkover, as a young woman uh, artist, studies in the Vilna uh, Art School and comes to New York. Normally we think of no, people leaving Eastern Europe for America and never going back. No, she comes to New York to find her subject. She says, you know, Vilna's small. It's a borderland community. I want to see the world. She goes to New York. She comes back to Vilna, ends up dying during the war, ends up being a member of this group at the time. But what does she see when she's in New York? Hard to see. Introduced to American race relations. She's very interested in the, the docks, and sort of the relationship between the Irish workers uh, and um, black workers on the docks. So this becomes part of Yiddish art, but not Yiddish American art. This is Yiddish Vilna Polish art, which is really quite interesting um, to think about. Uh, the arch, that, that must be New York or some, uh, some dock. Um, please. So we have all of these young writers who are part of this group, and I'm not going to be able to talk about all of them. This is one of their communist writers, uh, but perhaps I'll focus on the three uh, big ones that, that I haven't, sort of two that I've mentioned and one that I haven't mentioned. If we could go ahead to Laser Wolf. I keep these for my teaching. Let's keep going. No. More. Well, Laser Wolf, let's, let's stop there. We'll go, go back. That's fine. We'll, we'll stay here. So Laser Wolf, who I mentioned earlier, this great parodic poet, right? Uh, he was the only man in Vilna who was said to have the occupation of sewing the leather fingers, uh, the fingers on leather gloves. And it's amazing when you do archival research what you discover. And all these writers say that if you go to Laser Wolf's house, you couldn't move because you walked in there and there were papers everywhere. 
he wrote or attempted to write or break the poetry world record for the most poems written in a month. A thousand and one poems in a month, he wrote. And he wrote to all these newspapers saying, I just broke the world record for poetry writing. But his most famous, I think, contribution to Yiddish literature, even though he died very young, he died as a refugee in the Soviet Union, probably of cholera of, uh, or, or another disease, um, was the way in which he re-engaged with classics of Yiddish literature. So I mentioned earlier Tevye, right? And he took the name of one of the characters that Sholem Aleichem created in the Tevye monologues. He actually goes in the 1930s and rewrites the Tevye monologues. He adds a new story. So for those of you who've only seen Fiddler on the Roof on stage or on film uh, and haven't read it, great read. Uh, what you probably don't know is what's on film. Obviously, it's an adaptation, but it doesn't include mention of all of the daughters. In that actual episode that Shalom Lechem writes, there are more daughters than are actually mentioned in the film. And uh, what Tevye actually tries to do uh, in that is try to manage parenting. It's really a text, when you think of it, about Jewish parenting and the challenges of parenting. But the challenges of parenting change between 1892 and 1914, when Sholem Aleichem is writing that. And Laser Wolf now has to figure out, what am I going to do to write about the times? And what do you think the major challenge for young parent, for parents and children was in the 1930s? What do you think one of the, what, what's, what were some of the challenges at the time? In the 30s? Any guesses? Anti-Semitism, okay. He wrote poems about anti-Semitism. Um, intermarriage, not, I mean, there, were, there, there was a lot of intermarriage. Not, not only, there's some great books right now, but in the 19th century, there were huge waves of Jews in the Russian Empire converting because under the assumption that if you don't believe in God, it's better not to believe in God as a Christian than as a Jew. If you're living in the Russian Empire, it gives you more opportunities. So uh, another aspect of Jewish history that perhaps we don't talk about, right? That's sort of this idea that Jews don't convert. Well, of course... Jews convert in very large numbers and oftentimes willingly. Uh, what else do you think some of the challenges might have been? Economics, right? There's the, the poverty, tremendous poverty. This was a very, very impoverished community. And emigration, right? People are moving away, leaving their families. Uh, the one that I'm really thinking about here is political, right? The, the, the promise of communism across the border uh, was stealing the hearts and minds of many, many young Yiddish-speaking Jews at the time. And he rewrites the Tevye monologues by having Tevye have a son instead of a daughter. The genius of the original text was if you have a male father and all these daughters, there's a much more tender relationship, perhaps, between a father and his daughters than the vexed relationship between a father and a son. And he has a son, and the son is out in the streets hanging red banners, getting arrested. And Tevye says, you know, as your father, you're not only endangering yourself, but Jewish history teaches us that when you do things that are against what the government wants you to do, you can endanger the whole family or even the entire community. And Tevye says, he's an old man by this time, you know, if I were younger, I would hit you. And his son, in Laser Wolf's adaptation, says, you don't understand the times, my father, you know, Tevye. If you hit me, I would hit you back. This was astonishing for Yiddish readers, right? This is the hero, the main character of uh, all of Yiddish literature, the most beloved character. And to hear a young person saying that this, is, this, was the, this was where the Jewish community was at this point 
was shocking for readers uh, to hear. So this is just one way that uh, a writer at this time, a young Yiddish writer, would not only hold a mirror up to the community, but really begin conversations within households among readers about where the Jewish community was going and what its fundamental challenges were, and whether those challenges were actually mainly external, or whether those challenges were also, as importantly, internal to the community itself. The next uh, figure is Grade. I mentioned Grade earlier. This is the title of his book, Yo, that I mentioned. What I think is really interesting to talk about here is that so much of Yiddish literature is focused on the uh, relationship with, um, between Jew the, when, when, they, when they write about religion, if they write about religion, they normally write about uh, Hasidim. About, and, and Hasidim were essentially centered in the Polish lands and in the Ukrainian lands. But when you think of Lithuania, when you think of Litvak Jews, Litvak Jews were not Hasidim, they were anti-Hasidim because the Gaon of Vilna said Hasidism might spread everywhere else, not into Vilna. He would not allow them there. And in fact, he wouldn't even allow members of his community to marry Hasidim. Can you imagine that? They were all Jews, but there was no Vilna Jews that were marrying Hasidic Jews because he thought that they were really beyond the pale of what Jewishness was all about. And when we look at Yiddish literature, we see that a lot of it is consumed with Hasidic ideas, culture, and influences. One of the founders of modern Yiddish literature was a Hasidic Rebbe, Nachman of Bratzlav, who writes these amazing modern stories that rarely even mention the word Jew. Uh, and then when you see other Yiddish writers, whether it be the founding writers of Yiddish literature, especially parrots, or people whose names you might recognize, like Besheva Singer, whose father was a Hasid, but whose mother was a misnagdic, an anti-Hasid, so he had both of them within his family. All of them write about Hasidim. And these young writers in Vilna came to the conclusion, well, what about the Misnagdim? Where are they going to be represented in Yiddish literature? And it was Grade, as a young writer, who it suddenly clicked. I came from the world of yeshiva. I despise that world, but I know it more intimately than anyone else. That will now be the topic, my topic. I will make it my topic for Yiddish literature. And he spends the rest of his career as a secular writer, both in Vilna and then eventually in uh, New York, writing the most amazing poems, short stories, and novels that recreate the world of Lithuanian high misnagdic religious culture, both from the perspective of the rabbis, the yeshiva students, and also of the communities that supported them, mainly women and daughters. So he has these amazing, this amazing collection of works that's been translated into English known as Rabbis and Wives. And in 1939, he writes, uh, publishes a book called Musernikis, that is the Musser yeshiva students, his yeshiva students. He was once a Musser student, totally exposing what that world was like. In the last scene, all of the students are in the yeshiva. Someone accidentally elbows or touches the Arn Kodesh. It starts to fall. Of course, the intuitive reaction of people who are sitting in an audience or studying if a Torah looks like it's going to be dropped is what? Right. You, you, so, you, so he has this scene where everyone's lunging towards it to catch the Sifre Torah. Uh, but Grada's character says that he was on the threshold of the door and he felt his feet planted to the ground. That is, he couldn't move. And this, to me, is such an amazing image because, in a way, he's the writer who says, I'm going to look into that world 
but I'm also not going to be part of it. I'm going to be the door. I'm going to be standing in the doorway. I'm both of and I'm not. And that is now going to be the topic that in a way only Yiddish literature can produce. When you think of why certain literatures are, have power and are important, it's because they're able to communicate certain aspects of humanity that other literatures or languages can't. And I think that's why when we think of Yiddish literature, so much of it is interested in religious culture. And when we think of Yiddish literature, what is the mythopoetic center of Yiddish literature? When it's not written about cities like New York or Warsaw, Vilna, what is the, what, what community or, or let's say social reality exists within the Yiddish speaking world that no other people in the world have? The shtetl, right? So the shtetl becomes this center, imagined center. In fact, it exists in reality, architecturally, socially, religiously, familially, but the way it appears in Yiddish literature is completely different. In the same way that Faulkner's southern town is not necessarily the southern town as it exists, but as it exists in Faulkner's imagination. So we have in Yiddish literature these shtetls, these small Jewish towns that in a way, going back to Shalom Aleichem, write the non-Jewish populations out of the town. They're written to be sort of these hermetically sealed Jewish worlds where maybe at certain points, you know, the peasants will come in a couple of times a week to trade, but ultimately these are Jewish, closed Jewish worlds. When in fact we know that these were worlds that were highly hybrid, very multicultural, very multilingual. So he wants to bring that uh, aspect of Litva culture into Yiddish literature. And what amazes me in thinking about someone like Grade is that he stands on the stage in 1939. I'm trying to find one um, quote. Just before uh, World War II breaks out, people are anxious at the time, and he says to the massive audience at the time, we must seek out spiritual confidence in our history and strength in our heroic examples of goodness and courage in times of national catastrophe. That became the calling of what a Jewish writer ought to be. A Jewish writer was not someone who just wrote art for art self or was talented and wanted to go out and gain fame in the world. A Jewish writer in Grada's sense was a national writer. And national writers had collective responsibility for those who were their readers. This was an amazing thing that came out of this world of when Yiddish was young. So I'll end. Um, this is a cover of Grada's Mosernikas that I just mentioned. I'll end with Sutzkever. I think that one of the things that you might want to do as a community is to, once it's released, bring out um, or show, have a showing of Black Honey. It's an Israeli film that just came out on the life of Avram Sutzkever. Um, really one of the great, forget about Yiddish writers or Jewish writers, one of the great poets of the entire 20th century, uh, whose experiences span World War I and a childhood in exile in Siberia to growing up and coming of age as a writer at a time when Yiddish was young and Jewish culture thrived to being a partisan in the Vilna ghetto and in the forests to then uh, coming back and writing one of the first memoirs of the destruction of a Jewish city that we have in what became known as Holocaust literature to making it to Palestine, then Palestine as a so-called illegal immigrant in 1947 to founding the most important Yiddish journal of the entire second half of the 20th century in 1949, the Golden Akate, the Golden Tradition, the Golden Chain, uh, to becoming a writer who published more than two dozen volumes of poetry in Eretz Yisrael, and this is something you know, we could talk about at a different time, as he single-handedly 
managed to maintain, to bring Yiddish and make sure that Yiddish culture had a presence in what was increasingly becoming a Hebraized uh, collectivity in what would become the new state of Israel. And it was Sutzkever who in 1940, this is still boggling, right? So most of Eastern European Jewry and Western European Jewry are already under Nazi occupation, right? So we're talking 1940. Vilna is still a little island uh, because the Soviets had invaded it and it won't fall until the summer of 41. So he publishes a book in 1940. Now, what do you think a book in 1940 would be about knowing what was going on in the world at that time? What, what, might, we, what might readers expect of a book published by an important Yiddish writer in 1940? War, anxiety, ennui, what to do, woe is me, you know, whatever else we might imagine a writer would write about. What does Sutzkever present to them? What does he publish in 1940? Any guesses? You probably know, but it's not that. He publishes a book called Valdix, From the Forest, in which he writes about grass, flowers, the color of the sky, birds chirping, People, what is it? You know, what, to those who thought that literature, to those of my colleagues, let's say, who think that the humanities has the privilege of being the humanities, right? That it doesn't produce anything. This would confirm that, right? At a time when something is needed, what is produced by a writer? A song to the grass? Like that's gonna solve and deal with our problems? But for those of us who are in the humanities and know how important those are to resisting the technocratic and the technological and sort of the hyperproductive age in which we are, we know that the humanities are that which maintains who we are as human beings. And Sutzkever says, the only thing that the world, that is the material world, the political world, can't touch is a perfectly executed poem. And if the rest of the world is pulling us down and making us look at the evil that is all around us and making us feel dirty by virtue of the dirtiness of the lived reality, then Yiddish, poet must stand, Yiddish poetry must stand against that and allow us, provide us the vocabulary and the experience to transcend that experience, that is to look up. And he writes this book of poetry about nature that is the closest thing that I know of in Yiddish literature to a new book of Psalms. It's almost, it's proto-liturgical. He wasn't a believing Jew, so he couldn't, he wasn't going to go back and, and go back to the, the Hebrew classics, but he provides us with a sense of what it means to uh, strive for, for the beautiful, to maintain awe at the rising sun, to pause, to be able to grasp a sense of smell. And to a certain sense, that is what a real poet is about. A poet who doesn't give in to the needs of the streets, I'm not saying that Grada did, but Grada had one vision of a poet, national poet, respond to the community, provide them with a vision forward. But another image of a poet that comes out of the exact same group is to resist the reality that is around you and to find some type of retreat and solace in the power of culture, in the power of Jewish words that would allow the community to be able to maintain its own dignity and its own self. So that is just a sense of what was going on in one Jewish city during one decade, uh, a period not so long ago in the 1930s. Um, and now I'm welcome. Any questions you might have about this, about Yiddish, about Jewish culture, anything that I've said that's controversial or wrong, please. Uh, before we talk about the magazine's poetry, reminded me so much of Dada, 
Yes. They were exposed to this. This is the other thing that we need to remember. These were highly literate um, young men and women who were not only studying and uh, talking among themselves, but Sutzkoper, for instance, was taking courses on Polish Romanticism at the University of Vilna. Rafał Sutzkoper was taking art classes at the Art Academy. That is, they knew what was going on not only in the Jewish world, but especially in the non-Jewish world. And one of the things uh, that we have to remember, especially when it comes to minorities, is that we know that minorities always, in, in some cases, because of their minority status, feel that they need to prove themselves, right? So they wanted to show that not only could Yiddish compete with the latest trends in culture, but that Yiddish, perhaps, in some cases, could exceed the accomplishments of those other cultures. That is, for them, speaking Yiddish and existing Yiddish in Yiddish wasn't an embarrassment, wasn't something that should be shunned, wasn't something that you need to be shy about, but was something that actually confirmed the reality that the Jews were a people, not a minority, but a people. And peoples have their own languages, their own cultures, and their own histories. And the only way to preserve that and to communicate that is to look at those things um, with some type of self-respect. That was That's what Vilna allowed these young people. So, but wasn't there a debate even then yes. as to the nature of Yiddish versus Hebrew versus the yes. native language, depending on which part of the, of the various left, left and radical organizations Absolutely. were in. Absolutely. Yes. So the question is, wasn't, but wasn't there a debate and tension and fights even then uh, between Jewish languages and even outside of Jewish languages, or whether Jews should speak Yiddish or Hebrew or the what we call the co-territorial language. So in this case, it would have been Poland, but elsewhere it would have been other languages. Yes, and uh, this is the non-sentimental side of the, the research. We see that um, despite the fact that Yiddish was widely spoken in Vilna, the numbers of families who were choosing to send their kids to the Yiddish secular schools in the 1930s was decreasing rather than increasing. There was a sense that for reasons of not only safety but getting ahead, children will be better off by going to Polish language schools. So we see, and we also see that the nouveau bourgeoisie or the intellectuals are all starting, they all know Yiddish, but many of them are also highly Polonized at the same time. Uh, if you really want to read the best memoir about Vilma in the 1930s, because I think it opens up the reality of Poland and Eastern European Jewry more broadly, look at the reissued um, volume by Nancy Sinkoff of Lucy Davidovich's memoir. Davidovich, one of the great um, historians of American, not only of American Jewish life, but of Eastern, especially of Eastern European Jewry and the Holocaust, wrote one of the earliest books about the Holocaust, which he called The War Against the Jews. And Davidovich does something quite uh, interesting. She is a graduate student in New York, you know, born, born in New York, New Yorker, and uh, is studying Jewish history, and she goes to Vilna in 1938 to spend a year as a graduate student doing research in Vilna. So you imagine going from New York, this massive metropolis, uh, back to Eastern Europe at that time, and she has to flee when the Nazis actually uh, are on the precipice of, of, world, uh, of, of, of conquering you know, the entire continent. And uh, she writes this wonderful memoir called From That Time and Place, which is all about the world of Yiddish. It's about religion, it's about history, it's about the economy. And it's Davidovich who says, you know, it was interesting, 
And of course, I wrote this whole book, so I find it important. But ultimately, it, it wasn't sustainable. That all of these were dreams built on sand that ultimately would have collapsed under the pressures of the time, under the pressures of acculturation, assimilation, economic um, impoverishment, young people leaving their communities and not coming back. So that's, we always have to remember that when we sort of start to think of these lost Jewish centers. Did you mention that Yiddish is close to a thousand years old? Yiddish is close to a thousand years old. Can you old. say a few words about the, uh, the beginnings of Yiddish? And uh, German has changed tremendously sure. over that time, so Yiddish must have changed tremendously. Yes, yeah, so, so Yiddish, um, first of all, it's important to note that Yiddish is not an Eastern European Jewish language. I mean, it is, but you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying in, in a moment. Jewish languages migrate with the Jews. So Yiddish begins in West Central Europe. It begins in the Rhinelands. It doesn't begin in the Slavic lands. So we tend to think of Yiddish as belonging to you know, Poland, Russia, Ukraine. Not at all. It came to those areas when Jews migrated in the medieval, the Middle Ages from Western Europe, either because they were kicked out or because there were greater economic opportunities in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was then the most multicultural, we might even say liberal place to live in Europe. So they bring their languages with them. So Yiddish begins as, we might say, Germanic Jewish language in the Rhinelands, um, but then moves with the Jews as they move to Eastern Europe, and then migrates with the Jews as they leave Eastern Europe and go to Australia or South Africa or Latin America or Canada and the United States or to Israel. So in a way, it's not, I wouldn't say it's an Eastern European language, it's a global Jewish language. Jews take it with them wherever they go. Uh, and Jews started, but the earliest written uh, example of Yiddish we have is until the 13th century. But scholars tend to think that if people are writing this in the 13th century, it must mean that people know this. Right? You don't write something unless people understand what they're writing. So there's an assumption that it's about a thousand years old. The first Yiddish text is a Yiddish text embedded in a Hebrew word actually in a religious book. And then as we start to look at the beginnings of what is now known as old Yiddish literature, a lot of those beginnings have to do with tradition, traditional texts, sort of codexes to Bibles, or translations of certain biblical stories or texts, which tell us something that's actually really fascinating. And it comes back to a point that I made uh, in, about America, Jordan. If you need a translation or an appendix at the end of a book, in the 13th or 14th and 15th century, so that you can understand a Hebrew book. What it suggests is that the Jews at that time also didn't know Hebrew well enough to be able to decipher it without a different language to translate it into. So it tells us this is not this is a recurring challenge within Jewish communities, um, and it develops. And not only does it develop religious literature, but by the 16th century, especially 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, develops an entire tradition of secular literature, even before the founding of modern Yiddish literature. So this is, a, so this is a, a language that has both deep classical and religious value, and also deep, I would say, roots in, in, in terms. It, it, it's very important to now scholars of Middle High German, because as you say, German has changed drastically, but Yiddish is much closer in its grammatical base and some of its words to Middle High German, meaning that there are some words that don't exist in German nowadays that do exist in Yiddish, and we know that there are scholars of German who look to Yiddish to understand certain things about, quote, their own language. This is a fascinating circle. So what then was the discussion that went on in 47, 48, 
when Israel was being born, mm. where Hebrew was selected as a language as opposed to Yiddish. So I'm not sure that Hebrew was selected. Hebrew from the very origins of Zionism was the ideological sort of Hebraists distinguish themselves from Yiddishists by virtue of saying that Yiddish is a language of diaspora. I mean, it's a borrowed, they, they, are, they would argue it's a borrowed derivative Germanic language. If anything is less dignified, it's building on someone else's something, right? So for Hebraists and Zionists, the only way, the only language in Jewish history that unifies Jews through time and space is Hebrew, right? And if you are going to prove to the world that the Jews are deserving of their own state, and if statehood is defined as not only in control of a certain territory, but also having a culture, then the only culture that in some way is competitive and even equal, let's say, the classical Chinese culture, classical Greek culture, is ancient Hebrew culture. After all, the Jews gave to the world, not only to themselves, the book of books. So for them, the beginnings of the Yishuv, going back to the late 19th century and early 20th century, although there were fights over you know, people coming with German or with Yiddish or other languages, very early on in the Yishuv, the decision was that the Jewish path, the Jewish future belonged to Hebrew, uh, and that other languages were going to have no part in that. And that and this, so by 1947-48, um, there were many, many outside of Montreal, actually, which was a major destination of Yiddish-speaking Holocaust survivors. Um, many, many Holocaust survivors made it to Eretz Yisrael and then to the State of Israel. Um, but this was unbended, that basically Hebrew had to be the language of the public sphere. Um, but people, of course, you know, still spoke it. Yeah? Two questions. One, what was the uh, population of Vilnius? Vilna's population was about 100,000, a um, little bit more. Jews constituted about, but on the eve of war, it went up into, into 200, even more. Uh, the interesting thing about Vilna, and this will go for all those who might be going to Eastern Europe, either with you or on their own, is that um, it was unique among other big, big Eastern European Jewish centers because there was no majority population there. In Warsaw, you had 10 times the number of Jews, but they were still only one-third the population, right? Warsaw, with a million people, had, you know, six, it had Germans and Russians, but it had you know, 600,000 Poles and 300,000 Jews. So even though Warsaw was the biggest Jewish city in Europe, Jews were only a third of the population. In Vilna, there was no one group, national group, that was a majority. The Jews were 30%, the Poles were 30%, then you had Lithuanians and Belarusians, which created something unique in Vilna that wasn't present in other places. And that is normally, if you're going to acculturate or assimilate, you assimilate into the majority, right? So if you come here as an ex-speaker and everyone is speaking English, the obvious thing is that if you're going to give that up, you're going to go into English. But if there's no majority, the pressure to move into a different language or culture is lessened. So the population of Vilna was small, but I would say the cultural impact and the unique nature of the demographics of the city uh, had an outsized uh, proportion, outside influence to what it actually was. Yeah, follow up. My other question was, is there any evidence that non-Jewish people adopted Yiddish? I'm not sure that people, non-Jewish people adopted Yiddish as their own tongue, but we know that we know in many cases that there were non-Jews who spoke Yiddish by virtue of their contact with the Jewish community or by virtue of 
Uh, so we know, for instance, that, that, that maid servants who worked in the homes of uh, perhaps wealthier Jews spoke a very, very good Yiddish. Uh, but that, not exclusively. Traders as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there are still little pockets of people who speak Yiddish in Montreal and Israel and New York. Is there a common evolution of like more tech words or more English words, or are they? Yeah, it's sort of it was a question about the nature of Yiddish today and whether the sort of development of it today and speakers today and pockets of Yiddish speakers today. Um, some of this I'm going to talk about tomorrow, so I don't want to give away uh, too much. But I would say uh, the following: two, two or three things. First of all. There's a talk about a Yiddish Renaissance. I'm not, I don't, I'm not one of those Yiddish scholars who believes there's a Yiddish Renaissance. I believe that there's uh, more interest in Yiddish and things Yiddish than perhaps when I started out as a graduate student, but that doesn't mean that there's necessarily more people learning Yiddish to be able to speak it. Two, the idea that Yiddish is dead or dying is incorrect. The number of Yiddish speakers is growing. The challenge is, the problem is, that for most Jews in types of institutions like this one, if I don't presume too much, or who look like me, it's not the right type of Jews. So they discount it, right? That is, there are millions or hundreds of thousands of young children being brought up in Yiddish today, but they are ultra-Orthodox children. So, and they're growing in number, not shrinking in number. But for those who think of the world of Jung Vilna and Yiddish, you know, progressivism and leftism and politics and workman's circle, and sort of engagement with the world, that world isn't increasing, so the assumption is that Yiddish is dying. Well, it's only dying if you choose to ignore certain Jews and what they're speaking, and I know that there are politics and tensions associated with that. Uh, and then when we think of um, Yiddish today, there are pockets of academics, especially um, someone who taught me very briefly, Martha Schechter and his family, there are pockets of academics, secular academics, who are choosing Yiddish, there's even a book that was recently published called Choosing Yiddish, who are choosing to raise their kids in Yiddish as an ideological statement. And before Professor Schechter's death, he taught at Columbia for many years, he published uh, a couple of, well, he published a lot, but the books that I remember because they were surprising at the time, in the same way that perhaps Hilskovers was surprising, is that on the eve of his death, he was publishing books about childbirth in Yiddish. So you might say on the one hand, you know, what the, what do we need a book about child? Who's, who's going to need a book about how to give birth to a child in Yiddish? But for him, since Yiddish was everything, Yiddish needed words for everything. And that there was this vocabulary that people had forgotten about. He also published uh, amazing books on flora and fauna in Yiddish. So there are pockets. I have friends who speak Yiddish to their children. It's amazing to hear these sort of young children born in Canada or the United States uh, or Israel speaking sort of this amazingly fluent uh, idiomatic Yiddish, and that doesn't even touch on the last point to your question, and that is the, the, what we seem to have lost, and it's beginning to be recovered, is the fact that there are different varieties of Yiddish. That is, Yiddish was standardized, uh, beginning before the war, but especially after the war, and the language that was taught to school children or in universities tended to be a standard Yiddish that was influenced by Yivo, that was influenced by Vilna, but it was actually a Yiddish that no one actually ever spoke in history. It was an academic Yiddish that was taught to people that flattened out the language. 
And nowadays people are starting to recuperate. But what's the difference between a, you know, a, a Litvak Yiddish and a Galicianer Yiddish or a Polish Yiddish or and, and other aspects of Yiddish? It's not a realm that I uh, work in. You know, I, I do one Yiddish. Most of my work is textual and not oral. But uh, people will, you know, now you'll meet people and they'll correct you and they'll tell you that it's not the right pronunciation or why are you using the Litvak pronunciation when you're talking about Poland? So, you know, it's very exciting. Yeah, uh, and, and Grebach as well. There are a lot of kids, and so it's growing, like you said. There's also a group in Nesiona in, in Israel about, I think about like a hundred women that meet, and they're trying to revive Yiddish. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know, yeah, you, yeah. So, I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just a comment. So, if you look at the books for kids to yeah. learn Yiddish, yeah. they're wacky. They're not what, like, we What did you see in 60 years ago? You just mentioned it's changed. So it's changed. You're saying it's changed. Not the same. I'm saying it's changed, and I'd say that to, what tomorrow, for those of you who want to come tomorrow, it's at the Federation Building, right, in Irvine? What I'm really going to talk about is Yiddish high and low, and some of the examples of things that you are talking about. Um, so, for instance, the cat in the hat in Yiddish, right? <laughs> so... It's an interesting example. I was going to talk about this tomorrow, but we'll bring it up and sort of start wrapping up uh, now. You know, why, why are we translating Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat in Yiddish? Well, because when you think of it, Hasidic children, their parents aren't going to give them Dr. Seuss in Yiddish, even though they're Yiddish speakers, right? And I'm, as you know, I may know Yiddish and I may work in a profession, I'm not going to give it to my children in Yiddish because they don't know any Yiddish. So for whom is this book? For who is this book? No, not for scholars. I'm not going to spend my time reading Dr. Seuss in Yiddish. Why would I want to read Dr. Seuss in Yiddish when I can read it in English? That is, it's intended for nobody. It's, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's a fetish. It's what we would call a fetishized object. That is, you have it to be able to say that it exists in Yiddish. Or you have it on a bookshelf or a table, and people come in and say, Oh, look at that, Dr. Seuss in Yiddish. No one actually opens it or reads it. No one understands. But it's there as sort of to say that it can exist. And I think sometimes when we think about cult, I'm talking about lived culture, real culture. Tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit more about the Yiddish trace and about sort of imagined culture. To, the, to me, these examples, whether it be that or someone called me years ago because there was some uh, idea that they wanted to translate uh, Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter, into Yiddish. So who's going to read <laughs> Harry Potter? I mean, they, they, so they said, well, maybe that'll be a way to teach um, college kids Yiddish, right? Instead of using a book, you could have them read Harry Potter and discuss words. But I was like, that's not going to work. That's not the way languages are taught these days. So um, it's an exciting time for Yiddish. I think it's also an exciting time for um, just people who are deeply involved and interested in in culture and languages and literatures in so, general. So let me finish with two questions for you. Yeah. Why did you get involved in this whole area? Yeah. And you teach at Smith College, which is, uh, I'm not going to say it, but the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts, right? And are you teaching students at Smith College what you're teaching us? Are they teaching, taking classes on Yiddish? Yes. So why? Yes. End with that. Why, why Yiddish? Not, why, not tomorrow why Yiddish matters, but why. So I got into Yiddish going back to mentoring because I had a great uh, teacher, one of the really leaders of Yiddish literature um, at McGill, Ruth Weiss, who then, uh, after I was an undergraduate there, went to Harvard, and I managed to study with her. It was a great blessing to study Yiddish literature with her, and I think at this moment in history, I'm, I'm also very, very grateful to have been able, when we talk about 
sort of all the, all the important things that are going on in universities, we also talk about some of the challenges of universities, right? The politicization. And I think that one of the challenges is that many of my colleagues were never really um, exposed to um, conservative ideas. And to have a teacher who in a world that's highly liberal and progressive oncologist was also at the time a leading uh, neocon. Doesn't matter what anyone thinks about what your own, in the audience, your politics are. To be exposed to that sort of expanded my ability to be able to think broadly about Jewish politics and to be able to see things that perhaps I might not otherwise have noticed. So I, I got into it uh, simply because she, you know, was a great teacher and I thought this was really cool stuff. And you got to bring her here, by the way. So we'll yes, yeah, she, she's, she's great, um, great speaker. Uh, so and Smith, at Smith. So Smith, well, so first of all, it's not, uh, it's not we're not in the middle of nowhere. We are not in the middle of nowhere. We're two hours from Boston and two hours from New York. We are a, we are the, when people think about a liberal arts college in America and sort of construct that as an imaginary. Do people know about Smith? Yeah. 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 So we're talking about being in a, in a consortium like the Claremont Consortium is in a, when I left town, you know, the, the, the red buildings had fall leaves on them and everyone was wearing tweed and jackets and scarves. It's very, very, it seems very college-y and, and we love being in a small town. I also have the benefit of being at one of the historically remaining uh, all uh, women's colleges. Uh, so the people often say, you know, the challenge of teaching Jewish studies even at a huge university, you no, know, people aren't interested because they complain. Uh, okay, then you're going to a medium-sized university. What's going on in the classes? Uh, I find that the, the smaller the college, the greater the impact the teacher can have. People don't only take courses for what they're called. They take courses because you see that you see students in the hallways or in the dining hall, or you talk to them, and they're, you're able to communicate to them, as I benefited from, that this stuff is interesting and it matters. So at, at Smith, I do teach. Um, you know, I took 15 students to Vilna and Warsaw over March break for a seminar on Yiddish lessons. I had 18 students in a class called Introduction to Yiddish Studies. Now, I wouldn't say that I do that every year. If I only taught four courses a year on Yiddish, I would have fewer, few students. But I try to um, embed it in everything I teach. So when I teach for comparative literature, a large course on Holocaust literature, uh, my version of Holocaust literature is probably different than that of a French scholar or a German scholar or an Americanist for whom books that are post-war would be privileged. I'll have maybe you know, a third, if not more, of the course on materials written in Yiddish even before World War II in response to World War I, and then also works that are um, Yiddish works from World War II. When I teach American Jewish literature, it's not just, you know, immigrant literature to Bello, to Roth, to Ozick, to contemporary writers. I'll have a third of that course will be Yiddish writers in translation because they're also American writers. So it's a way, even if I'm not teaching a course called Yiddish literature, to bring... Uh, Yiddish into the conversation. And then I do other things, right? So I'm able to bring students aboard counterintuitively. So if I teach a course, I teach a first year seminar called Literatures of Zionism, which goes back to the 19th century and sort of looks at the he Hebrewist poets of the Enlightenment, like Udalit uh, Gordon, and then looks at Herzl and uh, reads, reads Altneuland, and then reads uh, early uh, Hebrew writers and some uh, writers in Arabic, and then uh, modern Israeli writers. Um, when you have a course like that, I'm also always able to offer an alternative, right? There are alternatives to history. Uh, and the alternative to history here is to be able to say, if you're interested in this material, on statehood, right, and nationalism and all those important things. There's also an entire other history of Yiddish 
culture and political history that had a completely different read of the way the world ought to be. And uh, I'm able to sort of bring people into those worlds together. And then I'm able to, what, what the, uh, sort of how many students do I get? Because I'm associated with the Yiddish Book Center, which is just down the street, uh, and because I've uh, really privileged to be able to teach at Yiddish Tel Aviv University in there, in sort of what is now the biggest Yiddish summer program in the world, uh, it's able to, um, I'm able to perform, they don't know this, but I'm able to perform for students the possibility of being committed to Yiddish, being committed to diasporic culture, and also to saying that you, those commitments don't mean that you can't also have a deep passion, interest, and commitment to the future of the Jewish people in Israel. So the ability to do Yiddish in Israel allows me to really confuse them and sort of <laughs> say, well, how is, that, you know, how is that possible? How does that make sense? So those things are exciting for, for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.